Father in heaven, again, as we've already been blessed this morning with physical nourishment and some spiritual nourishment through the main meeting, we just pray that you would continue to be present with us, that your spirit would open our hearts and minds to truth and not only open it to them, but to bring it about in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're, today we're going to be talking about carbon fertility. Um, what that means is we're going to be talking about organic matter. What we're going to be talking about is how you get carbon fertility into your system. The most, the most common, well, let me start with these, these two, um, with these two Bible verses. I've given you this one already. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there's no light in them. That conjunction is an and, it's not an or or a but. And, uh, that means that both of those things have to be consistent with each other. Organic matter is testimony. It's the coming together of the dust and the breath and that becoming a living being. Now, I could use two different terms. I could use organic matter and that's typically associated with what it past, I would call it past testimony. It's whatever was once alive that's now dead and breaking back down. And that's a valuable asset in itself that we can learn from the experiences of others. What I hope you'll get out of this one before we're done is that you need to be careful about whose testimony you're listening to because it's not all good. Um, and the next one points out what I'd like you to be doing and that is they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and again, the conjunction is an and, not an or, but by the word of their testimony. Whose testimony? Our own testimony. Not somebody else's testimony, but our own testimony. Okay, so here's that pie chart again. You've got your, uh, by the way, one of the reasons I need to talk about the soil biology is because invariably when you have conferences like this and people come in and share, and I don't have any problem whatsoever with that, you know, you, different ideas get put out and then people have to try to figure out, well, so-and-so is saying this and so-and-so is saying that and who's right. And so I want to be able to talk about soil biology because believe it or not, that is becoming more and more prominent than the organic movement. And uh, I, I believe there's some, uh, some errors in the perspective on that and we need, I just need to put them out there. And then you guys can decide, you know, what conclusions you want to come to about it. I just think that there are first things first, and, and those, those foundational things then lead to the, the, uh, the full function and, and benefit of, of other things. So if you look at this again, your foundation is your, your determined aspect, your minerals, and then your, uh, I call it your random aspect, uh, or your understanding, and that's the air and the water characteristics. And then when those two things come together, just like the Bible says, you, it becomes a living being. Now, when we're gonna look at organic matter in this pie chart, what they're typically looking at is past testimony. It's what's already been. You could put another term on it. You could put on there biomass, and that now includes the living, the, the living uh, um, testimony, if you put it that way. So it's your plants that are now living, your plants that are now growing, the, the organisms in the soil that are living and growing, and being productive, not just what, what has been. So 
what we need to look at is how do we achieve this, this carbon fertility? Because you have to, this is one of the, the most important aspects. You have to have this testimony in order for the whole system to work really well. And in fact, plants prefer their nutrients to come from organic sources. They prefer it that way. Now, why do they prefer it that way? Well, it's a lot more efficient for them. In fact, the plant will actually dump photosynthates or, or exude them out the roots. In other words, uh, Dr. Ingram calls them cakes and cookies, but in essence, it's, it's sugars, energy sources. They'll dump up to 75% of that photosynthate, they'll dump it out their roots into the soil. They're giving it away. Now, there's a reason they're giving it away. Because what they're, I'll give you, the, give you what happens in a, in a quick summary. They're dumping that sugar out, and I don't know if you ever noticed that when you plant stuff and it first comes up, and then there's kind of a lull, and nothing, they're not really growing that rapidly. That's because they're giving everything away. And what they're, what they're doing is they're, they're exuding a specific compounds, energy compounds, that will encourage specific uh, biological communities, particularly bacterial communities. What happens is the bacterial communities explode in growth. And then there, there's a shift back and the plant starts using more of the photosynthate to grow. And what happens is, in the, and we'll see in the biological process, that, that, that bacterial population dies back down to a, a more regular level. And what the plant just did was build itself a bank account. And what it's going to do is it's, it's going to, when, it, when the time comes, and I don't even have this in here, but the, the critical points of influence. There's critical points of influence in the vegetative growth or framing, and there's critical points of influence in the reproductive growth. Um, but what, they, what they're going to do is, when it, they make the transition from vegetative growth or framing to reproductive growth, they still have to maintain the plant, right? But they now have to bear fruit, and that's the mandate. And you'll see a lot of diseases occur, and we'll talk about that in the, in the last class, because the plant has the mandate to bear fruit, to reproduce. It will pull everything out of the plant it has to in order to reproduce. And that leads to disease sometimes because there's a lack of nourishment. There's hidden hunger that nobody ever saw until that, that process starts. But what the plant does with that, if the conditions are right, this works. If the plant is stressed for whatever reason, at the time it should be doing that, then this, a lot of times this doesn't happen and you get to the, that, pro, that reproductive transition and things kind of start falling apart. But when it goes to that transition, it's going to tap that bank account. And it's going to start pulling all that resource that it, that it built early on to finish out that that reproductive mandate on air and successfully, successfully do it if this process happened the way it's supposed to have happened. Now, if some things are missing in that process, then it doesn't happen this way and that's one of the reasons you have the disease pressure and the pest pressure that you wind up having. We'll talk about some illustrations of what actually happens in that process then. So there's, there's three different ways, I mean, there's probably more, but fundamentally there's three different ways to achieve that. Now, I gave you this Bible verse here because it's by the word of our, our testimony that we overcome. And we're going to see that in the, in the most important way of achieving carbon fertility in the soil. It's, it's, it's the least focused on, but it's the most important. 
And there's three ways that you can build carbon or organic matter in your soil. Um, the most common one is through overt application of organic materials, which is like applying compost and manures or, or castings of, uh, on your soil. What do you see as the hazard with that? Now, if you need it and it fits your need, there's nothing wrong with it. In other words, if that t testimony, just remember this testimony every time you, you think about it. If it fits your needs, there's, it's completely fine to do that. But what can you see as a potential problem with that? Yeah, it's somebody else's testimony, and it may not be what you need. It may not be what you need. And just the, the, the uh, overt application of organic matter from any source, and you not know, with, with you not knowing what your condition is, and what your need is, and whether or not that fits with that need, um, you will ultimately cause yourself problems. And remember I had said, I think I would shared, I, I, I get lost by this time into the conference because I talked to so many people in between the meetings that I don't remember what I was sharing with somebody in between the meetings and what I shared during the meetings. Um, you, you remember, organic matter is made up of combination of the dust and the breath. And so you have what I call air elements and you have earth elements. And when organic matter begins to break down into a stable form, which is called humus, which, is, which we shared those terms before, defined those terms before, when it does that, any surpluses are left out. Any excesses, because when it breaks down into a stable form, it's balanced. That's what makes it stable, is it's a balanced material. And, and actually, Dr. Albrecht examined stable humus he analyzed it in the lab because he was trying every way he could to verify that he was giving people a correct model. And so he analyzed stable humus in the lab and it came up exactly, exactly like the model that he had come up with. And uh, he actually traveled around the world and found some of the most fertile soils and analyzed them and, and it came up the same way, very similar to it, not identical. So what happens is you have the air elements and you have the earth elements. What happens to the air elements that are excess? Where do they go? Into the air. They go back into the air. They return, they go back into the air as carbon dioxide, oxygen, nitrogen gas, um, or, or to water, H2O. Those are all, those are all air elements, um, including nitrogen, believe it or not. There's 35,000 tons of, of nitrogen above every acre of soil, 35,000 tons. If you, could tap, if you could tap that reservoir of nitrogen, for your, your needs, your nitrogen needs for your plants, which you can, by the way. You would never have to apply a nitrogen source again. Um, so that goes back to the air. What happens to the, what happens to the mineral part of it? Where does it go? Well, it stays right there. Now, it, it potentially could leach out, um, but the reality is it's left behind. If any of you grow in a, a climate where you have net evaporation, and what that means is dry climate, and so water is net evaporating as opposed to staying in the ground. You know what a white crust on the surface looks like. You know, where water comes up, it evaporates, and it leaves the minerals behind, the salts behind, and you see that white crystalline substance on the surfaces. That it's being left behind. The minerals are left behind. So you're stuck with the minerals and unless the conditions are such that they can be leached out. Um, you have them, you've stuck with them. Well, did you need them or didn't you need them? 
I'll tell you the number one problem for, for growers is a primarily a problem for organic growers because of the way they, they do their fertility. But there's even conventional growers to get into the same problem. Remember when we were talking about phosphate or elemental phosphorus and I was saying it doesn't go anywhere? It stays in the soil and nobody knows how to get rid of it when it starts building up. Um, we don't, there's some things that can suppress it, but nobody knows how to get rid of it. The number one problem that organic growers run into is they, from applying compost and manures year after year after year, they accumulate phosphate in their soils. Sometimes they accumulate potassium too because it's a pretty high, uh, has a pretty high content in compost and manures too, but it leaches, it's leachable, and so a lot of times they won't run into that problem or they're growing high de potassium demand crops and so they don't run into that problem. But a lot of times it's just a lot of it leaches out. So not everybody runs into that problem, but once you have that problem, you're stuck with it. And so you now have to work with, a, work with an imbalance or an excess that, that you're going to have to try to manage because you're not, it's not going to go anywhere. Nobody knows how to get it to go anywhere. So the, the point on that is, is this is the most common way that organic matter is applied overtly coming from somewhere else. Now, the notion that this is a sustainable practice, which is, is promoted in that, in that um, school of thought too, is foolishness as well because you're taking organic matter from some other place in order to supply yourself and what typically happens is you're applying more organic matter to your soil than nature would ever apply at any one time and in a lot of cases way 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 beyond what would ever be applied at any one time and so but the reality is, is you're what happens to the place you took the organic matter from it's, it's being imbalanced, it's being lost there uh, in order to do that. So, did somebody have their hand up? Yeah, you use, you use phosphate in growth, but here's the, you don't use it at a fast enough rate. I, and, and what ha typically happens when you get the condition, those conditions, um, there's a lot of phosphate tied up in the, in the rock, in the soil, and you get available phosphate there and it encourages the microbes in the soil, they just tend to keep replenishing what you're taking up. I know growers that have been trying to grow out excessive phosphate for 20 years and it's barely moved. So there's just some things in life you just don't want to get yourself into <laughs> because they're very hard to get out of. Um, so anyway, that's the first one we're, and I'm just gonna be the last one that I look at because I think it's, I think it's probably of the three choices you have, it's probably the, the least desirable. It's not undesirable, but I think of the three, it's, it's, I put it at the bottom of the list. It's at the top of the list with everybody now, but I think it should be at the bottom of the list. The second, the second way to, um, to do that is through green manuring and cover cropping. Now, uh, I'm not gonna go, we're gonna look at each of these, so I'm not gonna go into a lot of detail. But the second one is, is to, to derive that carbon fertility from your own soil. That's what you're doing is you're deriving it from your own soil by going, growing green manure and cover cropping. It's deriving it from your own soil. So you know what your condition is. You're not gonna, and, and you, well, we'll look at those when we get to it. And the third one is, is carbon induction. And this is something that a healthy system does successfully. And what I mean by that, we'll see in just a second because we're gonna look at it in the first place. 
But this is overcoming by the word of your own testimony. This is the soil itself generating that, that carbon fertility. And not just generating, but generating at it. Um, I didn't put the Bible verse in here, but you guys know the Bible verse about being pressed down and overflowing. This is done because of a surplus. This happens because there's a surplus of energy in the system that you can build that carb. And it, it, when you get, your life gets to that place where you're pressed down and overflowing, where you can't help but spill over into other people's life, you, you've got extra to give. Um, this kind of thing happens. So the number one thing on my list is carbon induction. Now, you, you might not get to this right away because you've got to build the, you've got to build the conditions You've got to restore the conditions that this will happen in. So we're going to talk about that one first. And, uh, okay, carbon induction is, is, is a biological cascade that's done by the, the life in the soil. And I'll give you the steps that happen. In the first step, full capacity photosynthesis is established. In other words, the, the plant is photosynthesizing at the fullest capacity that it's, it's capable of. And most crops can produce as much as three to five times more photosynthetic energy than they typically do. The reasons for that are incomplete and imbalanced fertility. Um, they don't have the minerals necessary to run the machinery full function. They don't have the porosity to get full aeration and, and, and capillarity, you know, water height dynamics to provide that they allow the plant to operate at full function. If you've got a cooling system and, and you don't have adequate water, well, you can only run that system so much and it not overheat. So there, all of these factors come into play. But it's full capacity photosynthesis, and that requires complete and balanced fertility for the plant to be able to do that. What happens next is that sugars are released as root exudates, what I was just talking about a little bit ago. It's dumped out of the roots. This happens ongoing. It's insisted in early on they dump way, you know, the vast majority of it, but then they back off and about 25% of it maybe is being dumped into the soil. They're continually, continually shifting what they want, what they need from the soil. You'll see when we get to the soil biology presentation, I call those God's unseen agencies because we don't really see what they're doing, but we, we, we get the effect. And God has employed all kinds of agencies for our well-being if we'll just avail ourselves of them. Um, so the plant is continuing to dump those exudates, uh, which are primarily energy compounds, but they shift the type of energy compound it is, and by doing that, they encourage fungal populations, or they encourage bacterial populations, or they encourage very specific bacterial um, populations, or very specific fungal populations, to provide to them minerals, water, and other compounds, and what they're doing. Remember I said earlier they prefer their nutrients in organic form? I never finished why. The reason why is it's much more efficient for them. The microbes in the soil can produce those compounds for them way more efficiently than they can produce them themselves. And when they have to expend the energy to, to build those compounds themselves in the plant, then you don't get the growth and the productivity that you would by having a, allowing the biology to do that for them in the soil. That's why organic matter, when you put it on, helps things grow so well because there's a lot of compounds in the organic form in that material. And so it, it saves the plant a lot of energy and it saves it a lot of growing time by being able to, to tap that, that resource. And the microbes can access it rapidly because it's already there. It just has to be broken back down into the, the form. 
and the, the microorganisms break it down into the form that the plant, the exact form that the plant needs. And then the plant trades the, the energy compounds for those compounds, and they use that, and the, and the microbes use the, the energy compounds, and the, that process, it's a giving relationship. I keep bringing this box of books with me, and I'm, I'm just gonna leave it here now because I've carried it back and forth a handful of times. There's a book in there, uh, uh, How the Soil Works, by Dr. Paul Silty. And let me just grab it out here, I wanna read you. Well, I'll get it out when we do the biology. I'll get that book out. But it, he the subtitle is The God Plane Mutualism. Uh, I can't remember the rest of the title, but what, he, what his contention in his book is that everything has its food source, and it's a giving, it's a selfless giving culture. And when that's working well, things go well. And when it's not working, you have hostility and, and fear and, and all kinds of bad things happen as a result of it. But uh, uh, we're going to get to that for sure because I'm not going to carry that box down here again. <laughs> it's pretty heavy. Um, okay, so that's this. Hmm? Paul Silty, S-Y-L-T-I-E. I'm going to read a short story to you, too, I think, with the last one. It was written by a man, and it was published in, a uh, soil scientist, it was published in 1956, and it, it's about the Yakima, what happened in the Yakima Valley in Washington State. And I think it's a really good, it's a really good, it does, it's not real long, but, and I can leave it for people to look at if they'd like to. Okay, so that's the second step. The sugars are released as root exudates. Bacteria populations develop rapidly to utilize these sugars. Um, number three, as bacterial populations develop, they extract minerals from the soil, mineral matrix, to build their own cells. Number four, plants absorb, and if I need to slow down, just, yes. let me, okay, okay. Okay, as bacterial populations develop, in other words, as that population explodes, they extract minerals from the soil mineral matrix, which would include the colloidal complex and the organic matter complex and the parent material complex, all three of them. They, they, will, they will take minerals from. And it's to build their own cells. Okay, you ready? We can back up to this too, too if the power ever comes back on. They build their own cells, but then do they have exudates themselves? And that's what feeds the plant? You, you'll see what happens here in just a second as we go through the process. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's actually they're eaten by something else. Okay. But we'll get to it here. Yeah. So when the bacteria is taking that material, No, they're using they're using exudates like he said. They're using exudates to to etch the the mineral out of the rock to break the rock down. So are they using hydrogen for that? That's this is an interesting thing. They are actually using they're using different acidic forms to do it depending on what they're trying to do. This is a complex system, very specific system, but most people don't realize that now. A lot of people will tell you that this is one reason you want slight acidity, and when you have balanced soil, you're slightly acidic. Because what happens is that hydrogen is just exuded. Um, if it's kicked off the colloid, then it goes and it works on a parent rock. So if you lime your soil, I mean, this is why it doesn't necessarily matter if you lime your soil or not, because that acidity is going to either work on something else and be neutralized that way by the, the, the breaking down of the rock, or it's going to be react with with hydroxyl ions through other reactions and it turned back into water. Um, so a lot of people think you want to go and you want to fill that soil up as far as you can get it to neutral. And things will grow well that way. It's not that they won't grow that way because plants put out 
acidic exudates, the micros put out acidic exudates to get what they want. Um, believe it or not, the, the plant root can change the, what's called the rhizosphere, uh, which is right around the, the interface with the root where the micros function the highest and everything. They can change the pH in that thing. They can make it all the way down to three. And they can raise it all the way up. And this, this argument is the argument to people, the consultants who, who can't get it right because they're trying to mix and mingle things that are not compatible, then they'll argue that the Albrecht system doesn't work because it didn't work. But the reason, the reason that it didn't, is, and this, not the reason it didn't, but one of the excuses they make is, well, you know, you're just getting a snapshot in time anyway, and the plants, plants change the chemistry and everything like that. But that is true, but it doesn't affect the overall general pH of the soil. It affects the rhizosphere right in where the, where the plant root is growing. But it's a common, I hear it a common excuse as to why they couldn't, why they didn't work is because, well, you know, it's really just changing all the time and you can't really know exactly what it is. And yes, that's true. There is variability in it. And so from moment to moment, if you took a sample today and then you took a sample a week later, it might be slightly different because conditions have changed just a little bit. And so it might be slight, it's not going to be radically different. It's just going to be slightly different. Okay. So you, did you guys get all of the number three? Okay. This kind of goes back to your comment question. Number four is plants absorb microbial metabolites. So these are, these are uh, byproducts of the, 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 microbial, the microbes metabolizing, living, and everything. Some of it is waste products they give off um, themselves, and some of it is, well, some of, it's waste products that they give off themselves. So part of that is you'll have the next section up, the ciliates and the protozoa in the biological um, hierarchy there will consume the bacteria and it's way more nitrogen in the bacteria than they need, and so they, they uh, excrete high levels of nitrogen back out into the soil in a, in a form that's compatible to the plant, favorable to the plant, and the plant takes it up. That's what's happening here. Plants absorb microbial metabolites and become exceptionally energy efficient. Again, because they're taking these compounds in a form that's the most efficient to take them up in, then they don't have to utilize a lot of that photosynthetic energy to do all this processing themselves. This resulting, this results in the development of elevated lipid levels. Does anybody know what lipids are? Yes. Fat. Fat. Oil. Keep that in mind as we're going, on, going along here. Did you have a question? Yes. Is this still on line number four? This is number four. Yeah. Plants absorb microbial metabolites and become exceptionally energy efficient, resulting in the development of elevated lipid levels, basically fats or oil. Lipids are the form that, it's, that cell walls, that lipids are the form that are, uh, is constructed into cell walls and other structural components. Okay, does everybody have that one? The next step is those lipids are exuded from the roots. In other words, the same thing it was doing with the sugars, now it's, it's a surplus, it's being dumped out the roots again. So it's our, they're exuded from the roots and are digested by soil fungal populations. We had the bacterial populations first, now we're having the fungal populations. It's digested by fungal soil populations which expand rapidly. In other words, there's a, there's a symbiotic relationship going on here again. Now giving away, it's a surplus, remember this, it's always a surplus, it's that pressed down and overflowing. 
Honestly, people are not mindful of anybody else or anything else around them when they're living at a deficit. It's only when you're pressed down and overflowing that you become mindful and empathetic towards the, the world around you and the, and the people around you. And good things start happening when you're in that place. Before that, sometimes we try to do this overt, um, these overt applications, and sometimes they work out well, and sometimes they don't work out so well. Okay, number six, and this is the final one. Fungal digestion of lipids results in the formation of stable humic substances with long half-lives. Okay, I'll, I'll do this part. Fungal digestion of lipids results in the formation okay, of stable humic substances. Or you could just put there stable humus. And I put in here with long half-lives, and what I mean by that is it, it's very, very stable it's not easily broken down. And this, folks, is oil in the lamp. This is your, your extra oil that you carried along with you so that when there was a delay, you had the oil to light the lamp. That's carbon induction. This is the way, this is the word of your own testimony. And that, word, that testimony is a full and true testimony because it's driven by the, the, heart, the, the mind and heart of God rather than our own. This is the way you should build carbon fertility. And for all of the political wrangling and everything about carbon, you know, surplus carbon in there, if anybody brings that up to you, ask them one question. Well, you might have to ask them a follow-up question. Do plants use carbon? Then why, why isn't vegetation going crazy consuming that carbon? Why do you... It's, it, it, it should be, shouldn't it? Vegeta commercial greenhouses inject CO2 to increase the carbon dioxide level in the, in the um, atmosphere because they get increased growth. So wouldn't it logically be that, that all that extra carbon would be consumed and with increased vegetative growth? Why isn't that happening? Yeah, why isn't that happening? Anybody got any guesses? You've been in the class for a few classes. Yeah, it, it's a mineralization problem. It's a character issue. You know, you, you don't have the right mineralization. The plants can't utilize the carbon. That's why I say chemistry first. Chemistry addresses the physics, which gives you the porosity and the capillarity. And when you have those things, then the biology starts cranking and the carbon fertility comes. If you ignore those foundational things, you try to come from the top. Sometimes it works, depending on what your conditions are over those previous two things, but most of the time it doesn't work real well, but they usually get mad at you and they walk away because their agenda is political. It's not, it's not trying to solve a problem, um, but it's a mineralization issue. It's a character issue. It's not a... Okay, so we're going to move on to the next one here, but that is the way that you want to build your, your fert carbon fertility in your system. That is the way. Now, the other ways can achieve the same thing. They don't really do it very efficiently compared to this method, but it can be achieved through these other two methods, albeit you're still going to be required to restore the mineral balance and get the right porosity and capillarity in the soil.
Yeah, it's actually, believe it or not, or humus content in the soil is primarily microbes from, from microbes. It's not from plant residue. Um, only a small percentage of it actually comes from plant residue. And so that if you can, that's why you can build your humus levels. I mean, they, have, they tell you you can't build humus levels very fast, but I know farms that have built humus levels from, you know, by one or two percentage points just in a matter of three or four years. Um, and it's about getting the, the, the conditions right so that biology is just thriving. Ultimately, it's about that biology, but if every, it, that's not going to happen if, if, uh, if everything else is not put in place for that to happen. Suppose, I mean, a lot of the bacteria are growing off of sugars. Is this one of the reasons then that you like to add sugars to the soil and in the form of molasses and other things? Right, you're giving them, you're giving them a, it's a, you're helping them along because the system itself is not adequately helping them along. If you, if you go to a, uh, any kind of agricultural conference, now we don't do a lot of it at this one, where you have vendors who sell different types of products, fer fer fertilizer products, um, inoculants, um, stimulants, all those kind of things, all of them are addressing deficiencies in the soil, deficits in the system itself. And so there's thousands of them. I had a, I had a person who produced compost ask me one time, what, what could I tell my customers that could help me to sell more compost? And my answer surprised her, uh, but she got it after I explained it. I said, tell them when they don't need it. Now, if you were selling compost and somebody told you, tell your growers when it's not a good thing. Now, everybody's out there selling stuff. They just want to sell stuff. So they want to convince you that their product is going to solve all your problems. Well, it may certainly help. It may certainly, if it helps you to get to a balanced, a complete and balanced condition, it would certainly be helpful. But you've got to know what your conditions are to see what, what the need is before you, you go out. I mean, you go to some of these conventions and there's just hundreds and hundreds of booths and you, know, you try to run the gauntlet for people trying to stop you to tell you all about what, what they have to offer. And it, 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 it invariably, you know, things like, and it, there's always something valid about it. There's always is. The devil never, like I said, the devil never gives you total error. There's always something valid about you know, most of these things. And so they'll emphasize that part of it, but they won't tell you, okay, these are the conditions where this would really help you. They want this to be the, th the they want every condition to be the condition that that's gonna help you because they're trying to sell it to you. <laughs> and so I told the lady, I said, just tell them when they don't need it. I said, you don't need customers who put it on and then they have problems. They're not gonna be good advertising for you. You want people to say, you know, hey, these people, know when you need it, when it's going to be valuable, and, and, and when they say you need it, you need it. And that's great advertising to have for your product if you know, people are confident and intelligent about what they're, they're doing. This is a little bit like drugs for all kinds of symptoms without really getting to the cause. Right, and there's gazillions of interventions out there. People spend more money on all kinds of interventions, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. And it, it's, sim it's simply that way because in some cases it was needed, and in some cases it just wasn't. And in those cases, sometimes they aggravated the situation because they just they, they, they exaggerated imbalance or distorted something or another. And you remember, all of these elements are antagonistic in some way or another 
They're synergistic in some ways, they're antagonistic or, or balancing, is what I call balancing to each other. If you, if you exaggerate one beyond where its, its sphere is, it begins suppressing the influence and the expression of the others. And so that's why supplementation can be a hazard, you know, because there's no generalized approach to supplementation. What are your specific conditions? Then you can decide, you know, what I might need or what I might not, not need. And this is the biggest thing to keep in mind when you're going out and you're looking for resources and materials. Know what your conditions are. And then you can intelligently go out and say, okay, this is what I'm looking for. Do you offer it? Well, no, but we can, this will work too. Here's <laughs> the answer you get. But you can go find the thing, the resources. If you want biological inoculants, you go talk to the people with biological inoculants. What are you looking for? You're looking for something that makes phosphate more available? You're looking for something that will fix nitrogen? You know, know what you're looking for, know what your conditions are, know what your needs are, and then you can go out and say, oh, this is what I'm looking for, do you have it? And then you can save a lot of time. And hopefully a lot of, uh, avoid a lot of sales pitches that are not relevant. And I don't mean that as dis disrespect to people who are selling things. I just, you know, you need to know when your, your product is actually useful to somebody. Okay. It's, it's primarily consists of microbial, from the, the, the growth and, and popula microbial populations is where the majority of it comes from. So that's why when you increase biological activity, you get much more rapid humus formation because you're only gonna produce so much residue up on the top. And, and, uh, but this is where you can actually increase the, increase the levels. So that is, in my opinion, that is the, the, the best way to generate humus in your soil, or carbon fertility in your soil. My understanding is when the, the fungal portion of that starts to digest those oils, the bacteria doesn't really work on the oils. Yeah, it doesn't. So when the fungal starts to work on the oils, they don't ever really get the back, they just continue to break it down into those swamps and so on, which would feed humus as well. Right. Now, it can be, it can be used as a food source later, if, out of desperation. In essence, what is, what, how I take it from, from a biblical point of view is when there is no access to other resources, there's no longer any access to those resources, you have this resource here that can be utilized and tapped into. And the bigger that, the bigger that um, reservoir, the better off you are. That's what you can store up in your soil. Your soil, and I don't remember if I talked to this, but your soil has its own disposition. It wants to express itself based on its mineral load, its parent material, all that kind of stuff. And you have to impart the right character to it. You have to impart the right balance to it. If you ever stop doing that with time, it will revert back to what it was. It'll go right back to what it was, expressing itself. So you have to die daily is what I, the way I put it. You have to die daily and the right character has to be imparted to that life or to that soil. Because um, it will, it'll, it'll revert back. But if you build this reservoir, because it's not only an energy reservoir, it's a nutrient reservoir as well. And that reservoir can be tapped in, in a time of, of deficit, when there, there's no access to anything else. And so you want that reservoir as big as you can get it. And that's what you develop with time, is a deeper, a, a deeper stability in that system because of the, the storing up of that oil. I call it a storing up of the oil because I, I, it is actually formed from oil fats, uh, and, it, and it correlates with the, the parable of the ten virgins in, this, in the oil and the lamb. Do you recommend putting molasses and sugar on the ground then? Sometimes. Sometimes. 
Here, here's what happens. If I use sugars because I want to put extra energy into the system, because there's not enough energy, say if you got, you've had cloudy weather for days on days on days. You know, when I was in Colorado, we had 300 days of sunshine a year. And even the days we, we had cloud cover, it didn't last all day. Um, but if you're, you know, like if you're in an area where they get a lot of cloud cover, a lot of gray days and everything like that, you can add some extra energy into that system. I always use a whole cane juice. I use Sucanot. It's an orga organic cane sugar, dehydrated cane juice from, from organic cane sugar if I use it. A lot of people use molasses. Um, a, lot of, a lot of chemicals are used on conventional uh, sugar cane production. And so you can, you can run the hazard of having um, some of those materials in that molasses, concentrated in that molasses. It's not always necessarily true, but it's just something to be mindful of. So I just use, it's more expensive, but I just use whole cane sugar from organic sugar cane. That way I, I can know that that's avoided. And, yeah. the, I would, the problem that I would see with that would, not have, would be not having enough air in the ground. Because you know you have to have enough aeration. Because if you're uh, increasing your biological load, uh, you know they got you got the sugars. They got they got to grow. Well, you got to make sure you got, you're doing aerobic bacteria, not anaerobic. Right. We're gonna Otherwise, we're gonna get to that when we get to the the, the last class. Okay. Um, that's why you do those foundational things. Your chemistry's got to right, be right, so your porosity and your capillarity are right. Because if those things aren't right, then you're gonna you can actually add sugars to the ground and they, they ferment into alcohol. And alcohol is a, is a hormone indicator. I don't know if I brought this up, but it's enzymes and hormones. It's this, the signals being sent and, the, and the, the, resource, the means of running the machinery, the enzyme systems being coherent and appropriate. And we'll get to that in the last class. You'll see that that's where the problem is. Um, so, so I use a, yeah, Larry. Right. Yeah, that's the same as foliar feeding. Uh, I mean, he was commenting that, you know, you couldn't put enough on to match what the plant would be generating otherwise. That, that's true. Uh, and there's another problem. That's just the same as true for foliar feeding. You can't feed the plant completely by foliar applications. People constantly try to bypass the soil. I mean, we just don't want to deal with ourselves. We don't want to deal with our condition. And so any way that you can come up with to try to bypass it and just not face it, it's hard and painful to face. But, and anybody that started working on it can tell you that it's hard work sometimes and it doesn't always work out exactly the way you want it yet. It takes time to get you know, a balanced condition restored into that soil. Um, but we just don't want to deal with it. And so we try to come up with all kinds of alternative ways to not have to address our, our character. <laughs> is what it comes down to. The other hazard with sugars is if a lot of times people use white sugar or you know, powdered sugar or something like that. The same is true with using soluble fertilizers like nitrogen, soluble nitrogen, stuff like that. It's easy. And so what happens with the biology when they can just get it easy? They get lazy. Yeah, they get lazy and they don't work. And so the more you cater to that, 
the, the, the lazier they'll get and the less functional your, your biological system will be. And it's kind of like eating refined foods. That's why I use a whole cane juice because everything's coming with it when I do it. I never use, I hear a lot of people talk about using white sugar or powdered sugar or whatever. But, um, molasses is, a, is a good one because you're getting even a concentration of the minerals compared to the amount of sugar. But um, I just put it as the, the package it was when it came from the plant and figured it'll all get worked out that way when I use it. But it's not something you want to use willy-nilly. It's something you want to realize if, you know, there may be a suppression of, of photosynthetic activity and you want to avoid any, any stresses that might be created by that, you can apply some, some whole cane sugar or something like that as an energy source. You're also getting minerals to it as well with it. But again, there are conditions for every, to, to, there, there are interventions that meet the needs of, of very specific conditions and you need to identify those conditions and then determine what's the best intervention here. If any intervention at all is, is necessary. Is there ever a time when uh, you're not going to amend the soil because it's too, too bad? Or, uh... Yeah, if you, live out, if you live out in the West where it's dry, they have over-mineralization of their soils sometimes. And there's never a case when you're not going to do anything because typically the, you have excesses of some things and, you, and as a result you have deficiencies of other things. And so you're, now you're trying to have, you're trying to, um, restore those deficiencies, you know, by applying materials to, to, to fill those deficiencies. There are cases, I, I've had soil tests from clients where they're way over the top on almost everything. Usually trace elements, that's not the case, but they're way over the top on everything, and we have to try to get it out, to pull it out. I can always tell what people's pet fertilizers are, too. It always shows up. It's either a natural condition in the soil, which that happens to, or it's just what they think they've gotten in their mind that, Phosphate solves everything, or potassium solves everything, or nitrogen solves everything, and you can usually see the condition as a result of that, as, as exaggerations of excesses of those materials and imbalances on that. Okay, we're going to have to move along because I've only got one out of three done, and we've got ten minutes to cover the last, the rest. Um, I was hoping the lights would come back on. I had a question. I had my hand up. Yeah, sorry, I didn't. Um, you can you can get it from many like Whole Foods or um, Trader Joe's. Costco may have it. Yeah, it's it's just it's a granular form. You'll see it. It comes in a, if you go into the the sweetener section. They usually have it. It's called Sucanat. Sugar cane natural is what that is an acronym for. Does Country Life have it? So it says Country Life has it. I buy it in fifty pound bags because um, it's less, more economical that way. It depends on how much you're going to need. You can always use it as a sweetener, too. I mean, it's, it's a great sweetener. Very similar in its, its flavor to molasses. It's, but if you can't get that, and you didn't use the molasses, it's, it's okay to use it in the organic form? Sure, sure. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So the, the next one I want to think, what I think is the second best way of doing it, is green manuring and cover cropping. Or, or I say green manure cover cropping, because when you're putting a green manure, you're also covering with it, and both of those, those aspects are important. Uh, and what you're basically doing is you're, you're planting a crop that you're not going to harvest. You're intentionally planting that crop that you're going to work back into the soil. And so what you're doing is you're trying to, you're trying to take for nutrition, nu nutrient resources in the soil, build them into the organic form, into biomass, then you can store in the soil as organic, an organic matter that's 
got that optimum form for the plants to get the efficiency. And uh, it's cover cropping too because, well, first of all, it generates the organic matter for your soil because you're deliberately growing the crop to put it back in. And then it keeps something growing on the soil. It keeps the microbes in the soil busy. It keeps the soil protected. It gives you better water infiltration. So they're really, they go together. There's two different terms, green manuring and cover cropping. Um, but unless you're going to harvest the crop, it's a green manure. If you're going to work it back in, when it says green manure, it just means you're, you're going to apply it to the soil as a nutritional resource. Um, and the crops that you choose to plant as a green manure or cover crop can be, can be selected to target specific ob objectives. For example, if you need phosphate, buckwheat is a miner of phosphate. And so if you're low on phosphate, you may be applying phosphate, but you also want to see if you can't get more out of the soil. Um, there, there are, if you want nitrogen, if you want to start storing nitrogen in your soil, you'll grow various different kinds of legumes depending on your weather. There are legume crops, like if you grow uh, cowpeas, black-eyed peas, that type of thing, you can generate two, three hundred, sometimes as much as 400 pounds of, of nitrogen with that crop, and then you turn it back in and you, you, you make it as available as a food source to the microbes, but they're eventually gonna store it up as a resource for the, for the plants too. You can pick crops like oats that has an acidic root that's gonna extract nutrients from the parent material a little bit better than other roots would. Um, we could go through a lot of them. There's a book that was done by Michigan State University that's pretty good on this subject. Uh, you can go out and watch YouTubes on a Ray Archuleta and uh, Gabe Brown. The, this farm I told you about in, in south, southeastern Tennessee, they use a blend, they use a mixture of different types of cover crops as a green manuring crop. So they get different types of, of um, value out of, out of each of those seeds. I meant to bring it with me, I forgot it. Um, it's, if you just look up cover cropping, you'll... you'll I'll see if I can look it up and, and get the name for you, but Michigan State did it. Uh, it's about that thick. Um, but there's lots of resources on that. I think ATRA has resources on cover cropping. Um, and I, the reason I brought up like Gabe Brown and Ray Archuleta, these guys are, are doing some work on different types of blends of cover crops and uh, different what the objectives are. Like if you grow a, a calcium accumulator, you know, dandelion accumulates massive amounts of calcium. It can mine calcium. That's why you see it take over in your lawn. It's telling you there's not enough calcium there. And it can mine it when there's not enough there. So it's that big tap root that goes down. It's going down, it's going after calcium. Because calcium can work its way down in the soil. It's heavy and so it'll work with time. It can, it, if it's not being held on a colloid, it's gonna work its way down. They go down after it. That's why Canada thistle grows, by the way. Low calcium, it can mine calcium. Bindweed, does anybody have a problem with bindweed? It, it's the same thing. Uh, I'll show you a book here. There's several books written on weeds and what the indicators are, why they're growing there. We're going to talk about that in the last, the last section. On green manure, how would, you, how would you use it? Because, for instance, when you start going below a certain level of the soil, like three, four inches, you're running out of nitrogen. And, of course, you need nitrogen to uh, compost green manure. So, I mean, how would you use Well, you're only going to incorporate it in to... Uh, I have a spading machine that can incorporate a crop this tall. I can just go right over the top of it and, and work it in, and it'll, it'll actually leave it. it. It'll leave it. You just want to tilt it into the top surface of it. Oh, okay, just the top. Yeah, yeah. It only yeah, needs to go into the top. People, 
three to four inches. Right, yeah. When you do it, that's not the best way to do it. I mean, working the soil that way, if that's the only way you have to work the soil, then that's the way to work the soil. But it's not the best way to work the soil because you are turning it down and you might put it into an anaerobic environment and then you wind up with alcohol and formaldehyde and methane and ethane and butene. These are these hormonal indicators again and they're going to dictate what's going to grow and how it's going to grow. And we'll get to that in the last section. Okay, so I'm not gonna, I'm gonna move along so we get to the last one here real quick if that's okay. Does anybody have any more questions about that one? In essence, you're just growing organic, you're, you're, you're getting carbon fertility from your own soil. And the upside of that is you're, you're establishing that carbon inductive process in your own soil. And you also know you're, you're just putting back what, you at least know what you're putting back in there as opposed to when you bring other stuff on, which we're gonna get to now. Um, you're not quite sure what you're actually necessarily putting on. Okay, so now we're going to look at compo uh, you know, overt, the overt application of, of organic matter, of carbon fertility. This is what most commonly happens. Um, sometimes it's really good, sometimes it's really bad. I have one client in Georgia. They applied a massive amount of compost. They're, they did tests on the areas where they had fruit trees, where they hadn't done any of that too, and they made these beds and they put compost in, ton, a lot of it. And their natural soil was really good. And where they put the compost in, it was really bad. So, again, you need good information about what your conditions are, not what somebody else's conditions are, not somebody coming to you and telling you, it's fine for somebody to share with you, hey, this worked really well for me. Okay, well, let me ask the questions. What are my conditions? Would that work really well for me? Um, rather than just say, hey, yeah, for everybody. If I have the, uh, a minute to do it, I'll tell you a story about a friend of mine out in Colorado with the Back to Eden. I'm sure some of you in this have heard the Back to Eden video. There's some good information in it, but you have to have the conditions for that. To, you probably get tired of hearing me say that. So anyway, that, now we're going to look at the overt application. And you all know what that is. You bring compost in, you put it on your, your, your ground. Um, what ha typically happens, and in nature, that, that organic material would be deposited in a very thin, thin layer. Once it's broken down from the, you know, it's coarse material, like if leaves fall, when it actually breaks down into actual organic matter, um, to that, down into that level, you hardly see it anymore, right? Have you ever seen anybody, or maybe yourself, go out and put on the garden and they put an inch thick layer of compost on? Even a quarter inch? Do you know how much that is per acre? Even at a quarter inch? You're talking about tens of tons. So 20, 30, 1,000 tons. Never happens in nature. Never happens in nature that way. I know people, they put an inch on, they're putting 100,000 tons of organic material on. Now if you have, let's say you have 7% calcium, 7% calcium, and you put 100 tons on, how many pounds of calcium did you just put on? Well, it would be, it would be uh, 140 pounds per ton times 100, so add two more zeros to that, 14,000 tons. A C, you would have to have a CEC in order to completely fill it with its appropriate percentage. You would have to have a CEC probably up in the 30s. And that would be assuming you had absolutely zero calcium there to start with. 
You know, and so people don't think about it. They don't think what, what they're actually applying to the soil. Now that was just, I was, because a lot of people don't think about calcium in the soil, in, in the compost. They're putting it on for nitrogen. They're putting it on just as organic matter, but they're putting it on for nitrogen. Organic growers, that's the big thing, is they're putting it on for nitrogen and phosphate and potassium and the things that people look at, but they don't take into consideration what else is in there. And it depends on what the source of it is what the source of the, the compost was. Was it an animal manure? Did they, and we're gonna look at this stuff. Uh, was, it, uh, uh, was it yard waste? Did they add anything to it? Like, if, what if you had chicken layer manure that was composted? Calcium level is gonna be really high in that. Okay, so let me just give you some principles on this. Compost is not compost unless it is properly composted. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's stuff out there that is just aged manure, aged waste. It's dead because it's been exposed to so many antibiotics and other chemicals that it's just sitting there aging. It's not decomposing because there's no biology in it to, to decompose it. And so you want, you want material that is actually composted and preferably it's, it's been raised to a temperature that will kill pathogens and not kill beneficial organisms, and will kill weed seeds, and things like that. And so, we can't go through all of the how does that happen in making compost, we don't have enough time to do that. But I would suggest that you educate yourself on what a good composting, what a good compost looks like and how it's made, so that if you're gonna go out and get compost, you can ask the people who made it, how did you make it, what did you add to it, which is another thing we're gonna talk about here. The carbon to nitrogen ratio of finished compost should be about 10 to 1. And any good compost source should be able to give you an analysis of their compost so that you can see what the, that ratio is. You said the carbon to nitrogen? Carbon to nitrogen. So in other words, for every 10 atoms of carbon, there should be one of nitrogen. A 10 to 1 ratio. It could be a little bit above that, a little bit lower than that, but you're, you want to shoot for 10 to 1. If you get something that's 30 to 1, it's not, it's not broken down all the way. I've had guys say, they has, uh, Neil Kinsey said he always, his growers always check when they bring compost, they always take the, the cover off and they go up and smell it before they unload it. And if the ammonia blows you away when you take the cover off, it's not compost yet. It's too high in nitrogen. In some cases that can be okay to put on, but that high level of ammonia in there is, is gonna be detrimental. Ultimately, it would be beneficial, but in the short run, it's going to be detrimental to you. Okay, the ash content should be low. If it's not low, that means they added a lot of soil to it. Now, there's nothing wrong with some soil be at, added, being added as an inoculant. They just used it so it added as an inoculant biologically. There's nothing wrong with that. But if your ash content is, is fairly high, then it's a lot of soil. So you're just getting somebody else's soil. Um, well, that would be the, the, the mineral content. When they, when they ash it to check what its level is, um, which is they just burn it to see what the ash content is. If there's not a lot of organic material in there, um, the ash content's gonna be high. If there's a lot of organic material in there, the, uh, it'll be low. So if you put a lot of dirt in there, you're gonna get a lot of mineral, and you're not gonna get a lot of organic matter. So that's why you want it low. Um, and then, the other thing you need to know were there other ingredients added, because a lot of composters will add other ingredients because it makes better compost, compost better for them, and they believe that it makes a better compost for the end user, 
A lot of times calcium lime will be added to it. A lot of times soft rock phosphate or colloidal phosphate will be added to it. Um, you don't know unless you ask. You don't know how, they're, how it's being made. Now, you can make your own compost, and again, you're, you know what it is because it's coming off of your land. It's coming off from your soil. And so you know what it's going to contain. It's going to be pretty consistent with what your soil character is. So you can make your own and apply it back. Just remember that, um, like on a, on a, a six by 100 foot bed, six foot center, 100 foot bed, I might only put a, a, f a couple of five gallon buckets full of compost. You'd be hard pressed to see that, but that's about the levels you should be putting on. Now that depends on, you can put a lot of higher tonnage. Say you're missing all the things that that compost has. Well, you can put a lot more on, but in, in, a, in most cases, people are putting way on way more than the soil can handle and they're, they're, they're setting up problems for themselves down the road because they're, they're developing excesses and imbalances, which they will later have to pay to address, except in the case of phosphate, which you have no recourse except to try to grow it out after that. Putting the compost down. Yeah, at the at the volumes that are put down compared to a two million pound plow layer, it's it's insignificant. In general, it's it's insignificant. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. I don't know if I mentioned it, but humus has thirty-two times the colloidal capacity of clay. Thirty-two times more colloidal capacity than clay, and that's where you can increase your your CEC sum. But relative to the clay content in the soil, the humus content is, is minuscule. And so even though it has 32 times the colloidal capacity, you're not going to move your CEC dramatically. Over time, you might move it incrementally a little bit. But it's just a matter of sheer volume. It's not, but that's the way you can enhance your growing system. The more organic matter, the more humus you have in there, the, the more colloidal sites you have. Uh, Uh, no, because again, you're just putting it on in volumes that are not significant compared to the actual volume of the, the volume of the soil. Let me just. Um, Why does the APLD focus out on compost, and they say the more compost you put on, the better? And they share all these incredible stories about the produce they're getting. Well, remember, you know, you're getting it in organic form, and so you're getting most nutrients in organic form. There's a lot of excesses in there, and there's a lot of stuff that's just going to be, you know, go back to the air and everything. And if you continue to put it on, they can continue to tap that. But with time, they wind up pushing in their, their soil out of balance. And you'll notice that people that do that, most of them, have a lot of disease and pest pressure. You can grow really good stuff, but you get to wind up with a lot of disease and pest pressure in most cases with that on it. So... Organic fertility is important. You know, carbon fertility is important. Um, let me, because we're out of time, let me just, I'm going to list some sources, and you guys can go and look. There's, there's plenty of resources to see what the characteristics of these dis different ones are, but um, you have horse manure. It's usually 32 to 1 carbon and nitrogen. It's fairly balanced. Um, it's a pretty good source. 
If it's got a lot of bedding in it, that, that ratio will be narrow. And you want to be sure you put it on and give it time to and it break down so it doesn't tie up nitrogen to your, and keep it from your plants. Because the, the microbes in the soil eat at the first table. They always eat first, not the plant. And so if there's only enough for the microbes, then the plant's going to wait until the microbes eat. And if there's anything left, then they'll eat, or they're going to have to wait till the microbes give it back. Because they're not going to, they're not going to get it. The microbes always eat first. Cattle manure uh, is a lower, it's more narrow carbon to nitrogen ratio um, than horse manure. It's closer to humus formation when it's compost. It's got a higher potassium, typically it's a higher potassium content. If, you, if it's cattle manure from, from uh, a dairy, the calcium level is going to be higher in it. Because a lot of times they're supplementing calcium to them as well. Because they're producing milk that requires a lot of calcium in it. What's the ratio of cattle? Um, it, it's, it's more down closer to 12 to 1. You know, it can be a little 15 to 1. It's closer to that 10 to 1 ratio that you want. It varies. Poultry manure, there's two different types of poultry manure. You've got broiler manure and you've got layer manure. Layer manure is, uh, is going to be way higher in calcium, again, because they supplement it to strengthen the eggshells than, the, than the, the poultry manures. They're both fairly good sources of manure. Turkey manure, if you're looking for copper, turkey manure, they have to supplement copper to the turkeys. And so that's a good source if you're needing copper, if you can track down turkey manure. Sheep manure. Uh, it's a very rich manure. It's similar to poultry manure, but it's a little lower in nitrogen. Hog manure is higher in phosphate. Hog manure. Well, I'm giving you the sources. You'll have to decide whether you think they're appropriate sources or not. Uh, and then yard and food, yard and food waste. Um, compost made from yard and food waste. And also castings, they're typically, worm castings are typically made from yard and food waste. Sometimes the manures are used, used in the production of the castings. So those are, those are your sources, common sources. There are other exotic sources like alpaca manure, and, and I know somebody was using alpaca manure, and they got themselves really messed up because that, they had a lot of it, and they used a lot of it. <laughs> Rabbits? Sure, I don't know. I don't know what the, the nutrient contents in rabbit pellets would be, but um, yeah, it can be used. You might, have, might want to have some analyzed or something, so you have some kind of idea, but, or you can apply it and see what happens with, with it. Okay, so that's it. We need to quit because we're already over a little bit. Um, one thing I didn't bring up was um, the use of something like biochar. Some of you have probably heard about biochar, where you're, you're making a carbon source and you're adding it. The, the thing about biochar, we're, we're working right now trying to figure out how we can load it. It's not loaded with, with mineral elements. And so if you put it on your soil without that, it's going gonna, it's gonna to grab them. And so we need to figure out how we can preload them with, with mineral nutrients. And in a case where you're deficient on something, it would be nice to be able to preload it, put it in that way, because it's a lot more stable. And, but that's some, some science that's being worked on. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.